the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office once again for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Jean Pollock Michelle. She's the author of A Habit Called Faith. 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. We'll tell you a bit about who the book is written for and how it can help to develop the practice of reading the Bible regularly, as well as answering the question, why? We'll also um, talk a bit about the uh, d- the vote earlier today. The House passed the D.C. statehood bill, and of course, all the attention is now on the Senate. 50-50 split with the vice president, the deciding vote in any a vote that may take place on the subject. We'll also take a look at the high-profile climate summit the White House uh, discussed yesterday and is holding today and tomorrow on this Earth Day. So all of that and much more coming up uh, on today's program. First, taking a look at some of the headlines, LeBron James is uh, being accused of inciting violence with his Your Next tweet. He targeted an Ohio police officer, and this is kind of uh, the times that we're living in. You make threats. Um, of violence, you incite others. And we're talking about people of influence, supposedly people of substance, whose words may weigh more than yours or mine, making these kinds of incendiary comments. Well, Los Angeles Lakers superstar, he faced intense backlash yesterday over a now-deleted tweet. He targeted a Columbus, Ohio police officer involved in the shooting death of a 16-year-old, Micaiah Bryant. Well, body cam footage released late Tuesday showed that Bryant be- was being shot as she was attacking another black teen with a knife. And some of the uh, folks standing by, including some African-Americans at the scene, said the police officer had no choice. It was either um, disabling her or the other young teenager being stabbed. James suggested that the police shooting was unjustified, coming on the heels of the conviction of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on murder and manslaughter charges in the death of George Floyd. Your next hashtag accountability, the uh, NBA icon wrote in it with an hourglass emoji over an image of one of the officers at the scene of the shooting. James was accused of, uh, by critics rather, of leveraging his massive Twitter following to target the officer. LeBron James is inciting violence against an Ohio police officer. This is disgraceful and dangerous. Is the NBA okay with this? Is Twitter? Senator Tom Cotton asked. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she pressed on whether... President Biden acknowledges his own role in systematic racism in America. The White House press secretary had an uncomfortable exchange with a reporter yesterday after he asked whether President Biden, once Senator Biden, acknowledges his own role in what the president described as systematic racism in America. Well, during his address to the nation on Tuesday evening following the conviction of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, President Biden said George Floyd's death, which he called murder in full light of day, had 
rip the blinders off for the whole world to see the systematic racism in the United States, which I would argue is a mischaracterization of that singular event. But he went on to say, I would say one of the president's core objectives is addressing racial injustice in this country, not just through his rhetoric, but through his actions. The White House press secretary said, and what anyone should look to is his advocacy for passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for nominating leaders to the Department of Justice to address long, outdated policies, and to ask his leadership team here in Washington and in the White House to prioritize these issues in his presidency, which is current and today and not from 30 years ago. Well, the New York Post reporter Steve Nelson followed up by asking Saki whether Biden believes except his own culpability for perpetrating systematic racism. I mean, in an environment in which of butterflies and insects of those who have uh, been offensive in their views on race in the past, it's a legitimate question. I think I've answered the question she went on to say before moving on to the next reporter. So apparently we can pick and choose who's held accountable for prior acts. In other news, Representative uh, Alcee Green wants to debate Representative Ocasio. I should say Representative Green, not Alcee. Debated, uh, wants to debate Representative Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal, which was reintroduced again today. And Caitlyn Jenner is mulling a challenge to California's Newsom, uh, despite a spotty voting history. Well, India is reporting record number of new coronavirus cases and House Democrats passed the D.C. statehood bill today. And they're calling on the Senate to end the filibuster in order to do the same. We'll talk more about that later in the program. Well, Texas wind farms are suing CityCorp over charges from the winter storm, and Walmart has sidelined robots to cater to pandemic shopping trends. The uh, National Rifle Association is planning to spend about $2 million to counter President Biden's gun control push. And Apple and Google, they've come under fire at a Senate to antitrust hearing. Costco is sounding the alarm on online scams targeting their shoppers, and seven GOP lawmakers have pledged to turn down donations from big tech firms. Now, how much of a sacrifice that may be for these particular seven remains to be seen. Meanwhile, Ukraine is requesting help as Russia's military is massing on their border. From the story, Ukraine on Wednesday urged Western allies to show they were prepared to punish Moscow with new sanctions, including kicking Russia out of the global SWIFT payment system to deter the Kremlin from from, uh, resorting to more military force against Ukraine. Another story uh, notes that Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky on Tuesday night said uh, and warning his citizens that the country would stand to uh, uh, to the last man in the uh, event of a war with Russia as tensions there continue to build along the border between the two nations. President Biden says uh, he wants to get covid vaccine, wants all of us to get a covid vaccine or the 4th of July may be canceled. Now, the truth is the president can't cancel Fourth of July, but that's the threat. The president says he might have to drop to small gatherings, which, of course, we've all been in for some time. It appears nobody will pay attention to the man. Senator Mitch McConnell says Americans are already getting together in small groups outdoors in blue states and red states in small towns and big cities. The country is not locked down waiting for the Fourth of July. Well, Arizona's governor is calling for the president to declare national emergency on the border crisis. Governor Doug Ducey said, President Biden, if you want to stop the disaster that's unfolding here, 
uh, and will only get worse. President Biden, you should declare a national emergency and deploy the vast powers of your administration to stop what's happening here. Well, Arizona Senators Kirsten Sonoma and Mark Kelly joined the call for the administration to help address the crisis at the southern border. Chicago's mayor might require police to get uh, permission to chase criminals on foot because um, no uh, no one should die as a result of a foot chase. That's according to Mayor Lori Lightfoot. So she's considering a policy where a police officer must first get a supervisor's permission before chasing a fleeing suspect. Theater of the absurd. Hollywood's is uh, uh, going to celebrate the life of a man who loves to literally beat up women. I suppose that should be no surprise. They're making a film to honor the man who fights in mixed martial arts as a female. The United States Postal Service is running a covert operations program that monitors Americans' social media posts. Well, the work involves having analysts trawl through social media sites to look for what a document describes as inflammatory postings and then sharing that information across government agencies. Civil liberties experts expressed alarm at the post office's surveillance program. It's a mystery, says the University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone, who President Barack Obama appointed to review the National Security Agency agency's bulk data collection in the wake of the Edward Snowden leaks. I don't understand why the government would go to the Postal Service for examining the Internet for security issues. And Senate GOP symbolically uh, is preserving the airmark ban. According to Politico, Senate Republicans kept their decades-long airmarks ban on Wednesday, but installed a new internal GOP rule that demands spending cuts as a condition of raising the debt ceiling. Both the airmark ban and the new condition for raising uh, the debt ceiling posture keeps uh, the Senate Republicans on track with Tea Party-era attitudes towards spending, diverging from the majority of House Republicans who voted in a secret ballot to back Democrats' return to airmarking with extra guardrails. Still, neither the airmark ban nor the debt ceiling language is binding, and that means there's nothing to prevent individual senators, senators rather, uh, not a Freudian slip, from requesting airmarks or voting to raise the debt ceiling without corresponding cuts. So they have something in place, but there's no accountability to actually instill that very thing. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the next two segments, I'll share a conversation with Jen Pollock. She's, uh, I should say, Jen Pollock Michelle. She's the author of A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. The book is published by Baker and she'll join us in our next couple of segments. We're also going to take a look at the House-passed D.C. statehood bill and what's next, and we'll look at the high-profile climate summit being held in Washington uh, by the White House today and tomorrow. Well, under government and politics, Lisa Murkowski has bucked her party to back Vanita Gupta, Biden's pick for the Department of Justice's number three. And Bernie Sanders has launched a bail for tuition-free college that disproportionately helps wealthier families. And national, uh, under national security, the Department of Justice has indicted an Illinois professor for secretly working for China while getting U.S. government grants. And a retired general, picked by Nancy Pelosi to review capital security, appears on Chinese propaganda network CGTN America. More on that from the Daily Caller. 
Well, the media, on the left in particular, the Daily Beast is being ripped for publishing misinformation about the Columbus police shooting. And NPR has posted a disclaimer on their report saying it may be getting the facts wrong. In the annals of social justice, the caliphate, Black Lives Matter activists, say we're never going to be satisfied. Burn it down. So if you're looking for uh, the moral of the Chauvin verdict and the events leading up to it, apparently it's not that we're all going to move forward more reflective and uh, more determined. Black Lives Matter activists saying we're never going to be satisfied. Burn it down. New York City will no longer prosecute prostitution, and they've dismissed uh, dismissed rather some 900 plus cases. Well, on this day in history, the year 2000, in a pre-dawn raid, armed immigration agents seized Alien Gonzalez. You might remember the Cuban boy at the center of a custody dispute from his relative's home in Miami. He was reunited with his father at Andrews Air Force Base shortly after. 1864, Congress authorizes the use of the phrase, in God we trust, on U.S. coins. 1898, Congress authorizes the creation of the first U.S. voluntary, or rather volunteer cavalry, cavalry, Uh, also known as the Rough Riders. 1915, the first full-scale use of deadly chemicals in warfare takes place in Germany as forces unleash uh, chlorine gas against Allied troops at the start of the Second Battle of um, in Belgium during World War One. Thousands of soldiers are believed to have died. 1970, millions of Americans concerned about the environment observe the first Earth Day. 1993, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is dedicated in Washington, D.C. to honor victims of Nazi extermination. 2004, Army Ranger Pat Tillman, who traded his multi-million dollar NFL contract to serve in Afghanistan, is killed by friendly fire at age 27. Finally, 2005, Zacharias Musawi pleads guilty in a federal courtroom outside Washington, D.C. to conspiring with 9-11 hijackers to kill Americans. Musawi is serving a life prison sentence at this time. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the um, House passed the D.C. statehood bill to make the district's 51st state after heated floor debate. This comes as no surprise. There was discussion of doing just that prior to the election, and the Democrats have been giddy at the prospect of being successful this time around, although passing it in the House is not a guarantee of the Senate. Well, the divided House Thursday passed legislation to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state and to grant it more than uh, it's more than 700,000 residents full representation in Congress. Well, the strictly party line vote in the House was 216 to 208, with all Republicans rejecting the statehood bill dubbed H.R. 51. The legislation has the support from President Biden, but faces long odds of passing in the 50-50 split Senate. Well, debate over statehood got particularly heated on the House floor on Thursday when New York Democrat Representative Mondanaire Jones, he accused certain Republicans of being against D.C. statehood because the district was not white enough in their minds to qualify for state rule. Now, this is an outrageous statement. It wasn't based on anything in particular. But when you distill everything in the country to race and gender, um, this is what you uh, what you get. I have had enough of my colleagues racist insinuations that somehow that people of Washington, D.C. are incapable or even unworthy of our democracy, Jones said in a floor speech that drew a quick rebuke from Republicans. One Senate Republican said that D.C. wouldn't be a well-rounded working class state. I had no idea there were so many syllables 
in the word white. Well, D.C. is 46% black, 46% white, according to the 2019 census estimates. Well, Jones continued, one of my House Republican colleagues said that D.C. shouldn't be a state because the district doesn't have a landfill. My goodness, with all the racist trash my colleagues have brought to this debate, I can see why they're worried about having to play a place to put it, end quote. Mm, the rancor on the floor. Well, Republicans immediately asked for Jones' words to be struck from the record, and the freshman Democrat ultimately agreed to withdraw his statements. Prior to that dust-up on the floor, House Speaker Pelosi, she cheered the statehood passage as a momentous day for American democracy. Democrats argue statehood was a matter of civil rights and a necessary step to right an historic injustice of taxing D.C. residents without affording them any representation in Congress, which isn't entirely true. Statehood for the District of Columbia is a about showing respect for our democracy, she said, and disregarding, of course, the Constitution and the framers' prohibition against uh, placing the Capitol in a uh, state that would be favored. Well, it's well past the time to grant them the rights that they have been fighting for and they deserve, she added. Well, Republicans argue that because Washington, D.C.'s establishment is constitutionally based, any change to the district must come in the form of a constitutional amendment, not legislation from Congress. And the GOP um, panned statehood as a power grab by Democrats to expand the majority of the Senate by adding two more senators from a liberal enclave. Let's be clear what H.R. 51 is all about, says uh, Representative James Comer, a Republican from Kentucky. It's about Democrats adding two new progressives, U.S. senators, to push a radical agenda championed by the squad to reshape America into the socialist utopia they always talk about. Well, D.C. statehood already passed the House last June, but it died in the GOP-led Senate. The chances of becoming law are better now with supportive Democrats in charge of both the Senate and White House. But the Senate remains the biggest challenge with the legislative filibuster still in place that requires 60 votes to advance legislation. But many Democrats in the House, including Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Democrat out of Maryland, are demanding the Senate get rid of the filibuster so the statehood legislation could pass with a simple majority vote. That would not only change the outcome of this particular vote, but it would certainly change the complexion of the Senate, which was designed to be the more slow-moving, contemplative, deliberative body. Well, Senator Tom uh, Carper, a Democrat from Delaware, is leading the statehood charge in the upper chamber, and his legislation has uh, garnered 44 members of the Democrat caucus as co-sponsors. Senators Angus King of Maine, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire are not yet on board. Well, led by uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser and D.C.'s delegate in the Congress, Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C. officials have pushed hard for statehood. The license plates of D.C. residents are in protest to their unequal status, reading, end taxation without representation. Supporters organized simultaneous rallies throughout the district uh, today in advance of the vote in all eight wards, but those demonstrations were sparsely attended with about 10 people apiece showing up in uh, two locations visited by uh, news cameras. Holmes Norton said D.C. should be no different than the 37 other states that Congress admitted to the union without a constitutional amendment, although D.C. is unique and uh, referenced specifically in the Constitution by the framers. She goes on to say Congress has both the moral obligation and the constitutional authority to pass H.R. 51. D.C.'s lone non-voting delegate said in advance of the vote, this country was founded on the principles of no taxation without representation and consent of the governed. But D.C. residents are taxed without representation and cannot consent to the 
the laws under which they as American citizens must live. But Representative Jody Heiss argued statehood flies in the face of the Constitution, which established the federal district as a non-state seat of government. This is absolutely against what our Constitution and our founders intended, Heiss says. Well, D.C. has a population of more than 700,000 residents, greater than Wyoming and Vermont, but the residents don't have the voting members in the House and have no representation in the Senate. Nor does the district have control over its own local affairs. However, the District of Columbia pays more in federal taxes than 21 states and more per capita than any state, according to the 2019 IRS data book. Well, under the plan, the 51st state would be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth. Named for Frederick Douglass, the state would consist of 66 of the 68 square miles of the present-day federal district. The two-mile square around the White House, Capitol, Supreme Court, and National Mall would be carved into a reduced federal district controlled by Congress and named the Capitol. D.C. would have full control over local affairs and full representation in Congress, which would amount to two senators and one representative in the House based on the current population. Biden's White House today formally backed making D.C. the 51st state of the union and urged Congress to pass the legislation to give Washingtonians, well, the other Washingtonians, representation. Again, what does the Constitution provide for and is this consistent with um, what is Allowed. We're going to take a look at that in just a few moments. Uh, I, I, we do have an interview with um, um, Jen Polak-Michelle, so we'll talk with her, and in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll continue our conversation about D.C. statehood. Listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've learned that today's neurological research has placed habit At the center of human behavior, we are apparently what we do repetitively. If we want to add something to our life, whether that's exercise, prayer, or just getting up earlier in the morning, we have to turn an activity into a habit through repetition or it just won't stick. What would happen if we applied the same kind of daily dedication to our faith? Well, my next guest, Jen Pollock-Michelle, she invites uh, the convinced and the curious into a 40-day Bible reading experience in a habit called faith, 40 days in the Bible to find and follow Jesus. She translates ancient truths from a secular, or rather for a secular age, and she highlights how the biblical text invites us to see how uh, to live, to know, to see, to love, and obey. Both believers and doubters alike are going to learn to explore how faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, might grow into a life-defining habit. Well, Jen Pollock-Michelle is the award-winning author of Teach Us to Want, Keeping Place and Surprised by Paradox. She holds a BA in French from Wheaton College and an MA in Literature from Northwestern University. An American living in Toronto, she is a wife and mother of five. She's the lead editor for Imprint Magazine and host of the Inglewood Review, a books podcast. We are so delighted to have you with us today to talk about your latest book. Welcome. Thank you, Georgine. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you as well. Now, habits seems to fall in that category of discipline, and that sort of fallen out of fashion in the 21st century. We sort of do what comes natural. We just um, do what, you know, we choose to do or not to do. Uh, Are people resistant to the notion of habit, or have we forgotten the value and importance of habit in changing the course or setting the course of important matters in life? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, in some ways, you do see resistance to habits. I mean, I think there's something in us as human beings. We sort of just want to have unlimited freedom. You know, we want to get up in the day and just kind of decide what to do spontaneously according to our whim, according to our desire. (laughs) And I think paradoxically, we also want a life that is Um, centered on the things we most value. And those things don't always line up, do they? I mean, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I might value good health, but what I don't want to do is lace up my shoes and, you know, get to exercising. And so I think habit is one of those ways that we can think about connecting our, our desires, our values to our everyday action. And there is discipline involved in it. Um, I think in the life of faith, it's never a discipline that's just totally self-driven. You know, we're mm-hmm. always asking God for his grace, for the Spirit's help as we engage habits. You know, I was just describing it recently to somebody that if you can imagine that God's grace and his power, they're like the wind, you know, and habit is really just the sail that you hoist and you hope to, you know, catch some of that wind and you hope for it to power your life in a direction of transformation and and mission. What does neurological science tell us about uh, the discipline of habit? Well, one of the things that research tells us is that we are habit-forming creatures, whether we think we like habit as a category or not, you know, that especially as the world becomes increasingly complex, habits, you know, maybe it could just be eating the same thing for breakfast every morning or, you know, having certain patterns of your week. You know, Friday is always the day that you order takeout. Um in a, in a complex world, habit sort of simplifies your life. You don't have to make all these decisions because you just have a habit. And the other thing, too, that research tells us is that we have um, so much of our behavior is far more habitual and subconscious. Um, we aren't making conscious choices all the time. We're actually acting out of habit. And so I think there's something, you know, really to notice about that. Whether you think or whether I think I'm forming habits or not, I am. And so to form habits intentionally allows us to be able to connect the dots between the life we really value, the things Mm -hmm. we really value, and, and how we live every day. Yeah, if we're going to live meaningfully, we have to be intentional about which habits we support and which ones we reject. Now, Mm -hmm. the book that we're talking about um, is divided into 40 daily readings. Uh, Why 40? And describe to us um, how this um, devotional, if you will, is structured. Sure. You know, 40 in some ways just felt like a really biblical number. Um, You have Israel, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus was in the wilderness himself facing temptation for 40 days, and Moses was on top of Mount Sinai um, for 40 days um, as he was receiving the law from God. And so 40 just felt like, you know, kind of an obvious biblical number. And it also felt like a substantial amount of time, that if you do anything for 40 days straight, that you're on your way to making something a habit. And, of course, what I'm inviting readers to is to make Bible reading a habit, um, which I think is a really important habit of faith. You know, truthfully, when I became a Christian as a teenager, someone told me this is a, this is a really important habit. You know, read your Bible every day. Um, 
40 days, you know, so there's nothing magical about it. I just think it, you know, has, it's substantial enough to form a habit. And the readings are 20 days in the book of Deuteronomy and 20 days in the Gospel of John. And I've had a lot of people say, well, that kind of feels like a bit of an odd pairing. (laughs) But the interesting thing is, um, as I was actually preparing for speaking engagement, long before I was even writing the book or even had conceived of the book, I was studying in the Gospel of John, and I was realizing as I was studying different commentators, reading different commentaries, that there are all these connections between John and Deuteronomy. And that actually Deuteronomy is, aside from the Psalms, it's the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. So it's actually a pretty prominent book. Not a book we pay a lot of attention to, um, but a book I think that's really important. And I think that highlights really what the nature of faith is. So when you open to the book of Deuteronomy, the very first phrase of the book, and it's actually the title for the book in the Hebrew, is these are the words. And so that's kind of the whole frame for the book of Deuteronomy. The words of God as given to Moses and given to the people of Israel before they inherit the promised land. And Moses is saying to the people, listen to these words, heed them, hear them, obey them, and you'll find your life in them. And then, of course, we get to the Gospel of John, and on the very first page of that biography of Jesus, we hear, we meet the Word of God, the enfleshed Word of God, Jesus himself, who's come in grace and truth. And so there are a lot of really wonderful parallels between the books. We're talking about A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Now, the goal ultimately is to develop a habit of Bible reading, which is such a healthy practice um, in the Christian faith. How do you structure each of your devotionals, each of the 40 devotionals? I know that uh, each one has an assigned passage of Scripture, but how is it intended for the reader to approach each one? And why do you think journaling is an important part of making this a productive habit? Well, one of the things that I try to do in the book is to make it accessible for people who may be on the spectrum, uh, you know, a variety of different, in a variety of different places in terms of their faith journey. So if you're coming to this book, and this is the first, you know, real kind of, the first commitment you've ever made to reading the Bible regularly, you may not, you know, I've, I've basically every day has a, a chapter, a full chapter that you could read and then read the daily reflection that I've written. But if that, I mean, for some people that's going to feel like an enormous amount of reading. They just don't, they don't yet have this habit cultivated in their life. So I have a smaller selection of verses, you know, maybe five to six to eight verses um, that you could read in lieu of the entire chapter. And if that feels too much, then you have one key verse um, that you could just sort of focus on and meditate on um, during the day for, you know, for that day's reading. And differently than, than maybe a typical devotional, a lot of times when we think about devotionals, we imagine like a really small book and you know, maybe it's like three little paragraphs and they're inspirational thoughts. This book really um, asks you to engage pretty deeply with um, the biblical text. It's not a scholarly book, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's more than just an inspirational thought for the day. It really is asking people to, to consider, you know, what is the life of faith really like? What does God want from in terms of his relationship with his people? What are the expectations that he has? What are, what are these big concepts like grace and salvation and even faith itself? You know, how are we 
meant to understand these. And then, so I kind of, you know, I'm trying to ask and answer some of those really big questions. And at the end of every day, as you mentioned, there are a couple of discussion slash reflection questions. You know, you might be reading this with a group or a friend, but you may be reading it by yourself. And those are a couple of questions that you could just journal about. I found in my own life, in my own habit of Bible reading, the more that I actually like really engage with it, like, and for me, that is journaling. Journaling is just a way that I, I, I allow something to penetrate a little bit more deeply, where I sort of linger on something, think about it, think about how it applies to me. Sometimes journaling can just help us to do that. It actually just sort of slows us down a little bit so that we don't just skim and quickly read and then close our book and then get on with our day. We're talking about uh, a great uh, devotional, if you will, a habit called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Jen Pollock-Michelle is my guest. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jen Pollock-Michelle. She's the author of A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Now, as you've described it, is this a book best suited for those who are seekers, who are nominal believers, or those who are seasoned but just don't have a regular Bible study regime? Well, I'm going to be a little bit coy, and I'm going to say yes. Yes to all of the above, which sounds a little, you know, that's like my husband. He kind of answers questions like that, two, two questions, and he answers them both with yes. Um, it's really not an either-or. I mean, I wrote this book because I have seen in my life that spiritually curious people, um, really, they're helped to engage with the Bible, to actually, you know, read the scriptures, to articulate some of their own assumptions, um, and then to measure those assumptions um, according to what they find in the scripture. So I have that kind of person in mind, which is actually just my everyday, you know, friend. Live I yeah. live in Toronto, which is an incredibly secular city, and so I I talk to engage with people all the time. People who don't share my faith commitments, people actually who share a lot of apprehension about the Bible, and so this project is written with that person in mind, in part. But I think it's also written for the person who's maybe been in the Bible for years and years and years and years. You know, in some ways, sometimes, I don't think that our questions are all that different sometimes. I mean, really, what it means to be human is that we want to find a life that makes sense of our reality, that makes sense of the longings of our hearts, um, that, that feels like it's coherent <laughs> morally, intellectually, um, and so I'm writing this book with a variety of different people in mind. I would love to see Christians actually offer to read this book with a spiritually curious friend. It could mm-hmm. be a neighbor. It could be a family member. Somebody that they've already, you know, shared their faith with maybe. They've, they've told this person about their own personal faith but they've not been able to sort of take that conversation to the next step. Hey, do you want to explore some of your own spiritual questions? Would you like to read the Bible with me for 40 days? Um, Some people will say yes, and they'll be so excited that somebody's finally asked them to do that, and that they have a tool, like, so that they're not just sort of, you know, opening the Bible and trying to make sense of it themselves. Um, some people, of course, are going to say no, and they're not ready for that yet. But I've, I've seen in my own life, actually just even recently, over the last couple of years, when I was working on the book, 
I had somebody in my church who um, was not a believer, had come to church because of a life crisis, had a lot of spiritual questions, a lot of interest, wanted to read the Bible. And I said, well, and I happened to be introduced to her. And I said, I'd be happy to read the Bible with you. I'm working through Deuteronomy right now for a book that I'm writing. How does that sound? And that doesn't sound like the place you would normally take somebody um, <laughs> when you first open the Bible with mm-hmm. them. But what a, I mean, it's marvelous. I mean, in really a period of months, it, she was a Christian. You know, of course, I was there talking through Deuteronomy, helping her to understand it, making connections to the, the gospel and the story of Jesus. Um, but she's kind of my, she's my poster child now for, you can read the book of Deuteronomy with somebody who's spiritually curious. And I love that phrase, spiritually curious. I should mention that you share stories throughout the book of those who have come to faith and how it's impacted their understanding of Scripture and what faith is. Can you share a practical way that you've cultivated the habit of listening to God in your life? I know studying the Scripture isn't just about reading words on a page, but it's developing a relationship uh, with God as He invites us into His presence. How do you uh, and how have you cultivated the habit of listening in your own life? I think, you know, Cultivating the habit of listening to God is really, in our, in our noisy age, a lot about cultivating the conditions of quiet in our lives. So, you know, of course, yes, I do have a habit of reading the Bible every day. But if I were doing that with a disquieted soul, you know, in a noisy room, like in the middle of a crazy day, that I probably wouldn't absorb very much. And so I think one of the ways that we cultivate the habit of listening to God is just cultivating some quiet, slow spaces, you know, in a day where you don't have, you turn off your phone, where you, um, you know, turn off all sort of external noises, if you can. I mean, of course, I know there are people who are in seasons of life, you know, this would be lovely, right? I have five children, so I've lived seasons where quiet was something pretty elusive in my house. But if you can, it could just be for five minutes where you sort of slow down. And then you assume the posture of the little Samuel, you know, this little boy at the beginning of First Samuel who grows up to be the great prophet. And the first time that God speaks to him and calls his name, he doesn't, he doesn't know it's God. And Eli, you know, finally sort of clues in three times, you know, God has, has um, beckoned Samuel, summoned him, and Eli said, well, that's God. And so the next time you hear him, you say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And I think even if we could just assume that posture, and we could maybe even say that aloud, you know, get ourselves into a quiet space during the day, a quiet spot, might only be for five minutes, might have to be in our closet if we have little children who are following <laughs> us around. It might have to be at a time of day that, you know, you, you feel tired and you kind of wish you were just turning on Netflix. But if you could get into that quiet spot and you could say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And you could just allow your mind to grow a little bit quiet as best you can. Maybe you say, God, I don't feel quiet at all. I just can't even quiet this noise in my mind. And you say, you know, Holy Spirit of God, help me. And then if you can have your scriptures right there and you can believe that it's not just you reading the scriptures, it really is the scriptures reading you. And that all those words of God, they're really your life. They're your life. They're your daily bread. Um, that you can't live a day without them. 
I think those are that could be a good place to start. Oh, absolutely. Well, the book is called A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. What's the most important piece of advice that you have for uh, your readers and our listeners today? I, I say at the beginning of the book, you know, just try to finish. I think that when we start something, maybe we start a habit, we have a resolution, or could be you pick up this book and you say, I'm going to do this for 40 days. You know, so often we get like eight days into something and we get distracted or we get tired or maybe we just get discouraged because we don't see immediate results. And I just want to say keep going. You know, if you're going to take up this 40-day challenge, keep going and finish. I think so many things in life are kind of one like at the very end of it, you know. And so don't, don't judge your spiritual life by one day or three days. Habits really... I think they produce results that really are measured in years. So I want to just say to, to listeners, keep going, keep going. Excellent advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate the book, and I appreciate um, the time that you've taken. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Georgine. A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. An excellent challenge for each of us if we're struggling in our um, effort and even desire to open God's Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm con- con- uh, continuing uh, coverage of the House that passed the D.C. statehood bill. It was a divided House. They passed the legislation to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state and to grant its more than 700,000 residents full representation in Congress. Well, this was a strictly party-line vote in the House, 2016 to 208. All Republicans rejecting the statehood bill. It's dubbed H.R. 51. It has uh, the support from the president, but faces pretty long odds of passing in the 50-50 split Senate because of the filibuster. Well, D.C. has a population, as I mentioned, of more than 700,000 residents. That's greater than Wyoming and Vermont. But the residents don't have a voting member in the House and have no representation in the Senate, nor does the district have control over its own local affairs. The district does pay more in federal taxes than 21 states, more per capita than any state. That's according to the 2019 IRS data book. And that's what's being argued uh, for statehood by residents there. Well, under the plan, the 51st state would be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth, it would be named for Frederick Douglas. The state would consist of 66 of 68 square miles of the present day federal district. The two square miles around the White House and the Capitol, Supreme Court and National Mall would be carved out into a reduced federal district that would be controlled by Congress and named the Capitol. D.C. would have full control over their local affairs, full representation in Congress, which would amount to two senators and one representative in the House based on the current population. And Republicans and others who are opposed to this notion, and by the way, polls indicate the majority of uh, citizens are opposed to D.C. statehood, believe that that's what this is really all about, securing Democratic rule by um, having two additional uh, senators in uh, in a uh, liberal state and one representative in the House. Well, the president's White House uh, Tuesday formally backed making D.C. the 51st state of the union and urged Congress to pass the legislation and give them their long overdue representation. Now, whether or not uh, the Constitution is considered relevant, 
um, the uh, the District of Columbia is in fact referenced in the Constitution. I referenced earlier Representative Jody Heiss on the statehood, and she points out that H.R. 51 is a radical transformational push by the left to bend and warp Americans' uh, institutional uh, government uh, to their will. This is a political power play, plain and simple. Now, you can decide for yourselves, but this is what's being argued against statehood. The Washington, D.C. Um, Administration Act, as it's being called, that's uh, H.R. 51, uh, would admit the District of Columbia to the United States as the 51st state to be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth. There are a host of fundamental problems with both the approach and the policy of this bill introduced by the uh, D.C. delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton. While eager to solidify their narrow control in Congress to force through their uh, radical agenda permanently, Democrats, she argues, are happy to disregard the wisdom and the intent of the framers of the Constitution. Now, let's remember, there's a reason the District of Columbia exists as a special federal enclave and holds a unique status in our system of government as created by the Constitution. James Madison argued in Federalist Paper Number 43, if America's capital were situated in any state, that state would wield tremendous influence over the federal government. The Constitution was explicitly crafted to avoid this by carving out a federal district in which to seat the capital on uh, neutral ground. Now, if we believe this is the wrong approach today, there's also a way in which to uh, to alter it. It's not by a vote in Congress. H.R. 51 ignores the smart and still valid reasoning that created the District of Columbia some two centuries ago. Well, H.R. 51 is blatantly unconstitutional, she goes on to argue, and I'm referring to Representative Jody Heiss. Uh, by itself, Congress cannot grant statehood to the District of Columbia. Now, while states have historically been admitted to the Union by acts of Congress, Congress, the Constitution explicitly discusses the district several times and grants the, um, the, the city special privileges, all of which need to be addressed by a constitutional amendment. This is a longstanding and bipartisan view. In 1963, for example, U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, a Democrat, said D.C. statehood would be uh, inconceivable without amending the Constitution, and every Justice Department has since agreed. Yet, H.R. 51 makes no serious attempt to resolve this fundamental roadblock. Given that the approach is so obviously unworkable, why are Democrats so doggedly pursuing statehood through H.R. 51? Well, she goes on to suggest that legitimately uh, granting statehood to D.C. requires a constitutional amendment, which in both is both immensely difficult and highly unlikely. Recall that there are two ways uh, to propose a change to the Constitution. Two-thirds of both chambers of Congress can vote on it, or two-thirds of state legislators rather uh, can vote to ask Congress to call a national convention. Well, once proposed, ratifying an amendment requires approval from three-fourths of the states, either by states' legislatures or in the national convention, which uh, such... Uh, with such a high bar, any amendment to the Constitution requires broad support across the nation. Now, here we arrive rather at the fundamental problem with this legislation voted on and passed today in the House, H.R. 51. It tries to slip around these uh, requirements. Most Americans do not support granting statehood to the District of Columbia. The exact percentage varies from poll to poll, but a majority of Americans consistently oppose statehood. So why are Democrats pursuing it at all? Well, Democrats claim that their aim is simply to give the district's residents voting representation, but it's entirely false that the district has no representation. While it is true that the district does not have a voice in the Senate, it does have a delegate in the House and three electoral votes in presidential elections, something no other city 
in the country enjoys. If Democrats honestly care only about providing full representation, there are less problematic alternatives that could win bipartisan support. One compromise is to see the residential portions of the district back to Maryland, just as Arlington and Alexandria were ceded back to Virginia in 1846. Democrats have flatly rejected that idea. Representative Heiss offered a similar compromise when the House Committee on Oversight and Reform considered H.R. 51 on the 14th of April. Uh, she proposed, again, Representative Heiss, an amendment to allow residents to vote in federal elections in Maryland, an arrangement that dates back to the period shortly after the Constitution was ratified. In turn, Maryland would temporarily receive an additional House seat until the next congressional reapportionment followed the 2030 census, a reasonable compromise. Well, the district would remain neutral ground for America's government and the district's residents would have voices uh, with full voting power in both chambers of Congress. Democrats refuse to support that amendment. Now, why would they so stubbornly reject any compromise that gives voting representation to district residents if that is the primary goal? Because truthfully, Representative Heiss argues it's not about voting representation. It's about the balance of power in Congress itself. In um, well, like all states, the proposed Washington Douglas Commonwealth would have two seats in the U.S. Senate and Democrats know which party will win those seats. In 2020, Joe Biden received 92.1 percent of the vote in D.C. And that's no anomaly. No Republican presidential candidate has received more than 10 percent of the district's vote since 1988. The state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth would be the most liberal state in America, making California look like Texas by comparison. So right now, Democrats' grip on power in the Senate is so tenuous that they rely on Vice President Kamala Harris to cast tie-breaking votes. Two additional Senate seats, two additional Democrats, would be a tremendous advantage in preserving their majority, and that's what this comes down to at the end of the day. Well, as the House debates H.R. 51 uh, debated this week, don't be fooled by claims from Democrats. There's only one real motive here. They need more votes in the Senate to pass their agenda to appease their base. The socialists, Marxists, Black Lives Matter and defund the police movements, climate change extremists, union bosses, social justice warriors and so on. Just as they now aim to expand the Supreme Court to tilt it in their favor, they also want uh, they also want rather to expand the Senate to cement their Majority. Again, Representative Heiss arguing that the uh, Constitution is the only means lawfully available to um, make D.C. a statehood and arguing that there are alternatives that would not require such dramatic um, changes uh, and improbable changes, but would deprive D.C. of two seats in the Senate, which uh, she argues is what this is really all about. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. When we do, we'll talk about the White House uh, uh, Climate Summit. It's a high-profile event. It was talked about yesterday. It's taking place today and tomorrow. Today, of course, being Earth Day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. The White House yesterday unveiled plans for a high-profile climate summit that began uh, today. The administration offered new details about the big virtual climate summit, uh, signaling that they expect new emissions reductions and climate finance commitments from the multiple countries, including our own. And I'll tell you more about uh, the announcement regarding the U.S. in just a moment. Well, the administration said 40 heads of states will attend today's event, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Jair 
uh, Bolsonaro of Brazil. They unveiled a lineup that also includes high-profile names such as Pope Francis, Bill Gates, the heads of NATO, and the World Bank, corporate executives, and more. Well, the White House is trying to reassert U.S. leadership on the climate issue and encourage other countries to make commitments to slash emissions before 2030. Uh, On the uh, call with reporters this uh, yesterday morning, officials laid out the summit agenda but didn't say what additional commitments the United States would be making and has made today. It's widely expected the U.S. would commit and did commit to reducing emissions by at least 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, which would put the country near the top of the pack when it comes to emissions targets. Well, the administration also is looking to use this summit to showcase its all-of-government approach to climate. The event includes not only the heads of environmental agencies, but also officials like the Secretary of Defense, Defense rather, and the Director of National Intelligence. Well, the big picture, the summit comes just after the European Union agreed to a provisional deal overnight on sweeping climate legislation that aims to uh, slash the uh, bloc's net net greenhouse gas emissions by 55 percent compared to 1990 levels by 2030. Well, the president's uh, officials can use the deal to show that other countries are acting as President Biden presses our Congress. Uh, for huge new investments and unveils a non-binding target to steeply cut U.S. emissions this decade. Our political commitment, uh, the president and his administration say, to becoming the first climate-neutral continent by 2050 is now also a legal commitment, European um, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said in a statement. In addition, China, the world's largest emitter, announced that uh, President Xi Jinping would attend the virtual summit despite deep tensions with the U.S. And separately, the U.K. also announced tougher emissions goals this week, targeting a 78 percent cut by 20. 35 compared to 1990. And I think I misspoke a few moments ago. It was uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who in a statement said our political commitment to becoming the first climate neutral continent by 2050 is now also a legal commitment. That was not President Biden. So what to watch for? All eyes are on other countries, notably Japan and Canada, to see if they unveil new agendas and other nations' moves made to uh, to date are not necessarily because of the U.S. because um, uh, return to the world stage. The U.S. goes into the summit with a credibility gap uh, for those who support it. Uh, after President uh, Donald Trump, former President Trump, withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, which President Biden has moved to rejoin on his first day. Well, as I mentioned, President Biden earlier today uh, did, in fact, announce that uh, he would aim to cut greenhouse gas emissions roughly in half by 2030 during his opening remarks at the White House Climate Summit this morning. The goal, which relies heavily on the green energy subsidies included in the uh, president's infrastructure package, would see the U.S. cut emissions by as much as 52 percent below its 2005 levels within the next 10 years. Now, the White House arrived at the ambitious goal after consulting with several climate advocacy groups and academic researchers who have suggested the 2030 deadline is within reach. However, much of the uh, analysis relies on the assumption that Congress passes the president's $2 trillion infrastructure and jobs bill. That includes substantial funding to retrofit existing buildings with green energy technology, as well as substantial subsidies for electric vehicle makers. Now, that is a big if at this point, says um, 
Alex Trembath, deputy director at the progressive climate think tank Breakthrough Institute, speaking to political playbook. He says, I think it would be basically impossible to achieve the proposed target with executive authority alone, both in terms of investment and regulation. So this will definitely be an uphill climb. Some Biden administration officials have, however, suggested that the goal is reachable, even if the infrastructure and jobs uh, package languishes in Congress. Well, good luck with that. That would be a um, gargantuan effort if successful. Well, one of the things that would uh, be cited to reach that goal is the the clean electric vehicle. Well, one writer, Thomas Gallatin, points out that the clean electric uh, vehicle is something of a fairy tale. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's certainly not a gas guzzler, but what we produce and use to transport ourselves from one place to another doesn't necessarily leave in its wake some kind of ruin, if you will, for lack of a better word. Well, are people who drive electric vehicles better people than those who do not? Or maybe a better way to frame the question is, are electric vehicles morally superior to gas-powered vehicles? Now, the dominant popular narrative right now, uh, answer to both of these questions would be in the affirmative. After all, green energy is clean energy. Uh, The dirty little secret is that green associated with the electric vehicles is far from clean or free from pollution. That is, sadly, a fact of life. Now, this is not to discount the amazing technological developments that have come about in the electric vehicle industry. It really is impressive and remarkable. Rather, the criticism is aimed at dispelling the popular misconnect, uh, the misnomer of green equating clean. Now, electric vehicles are not morally superior to gas-powered cars. Each have advantages and disadvantages that any considerate consumer should weigh according to their own interests and concerns and not simply imbibe the propaganda of dubious activists or outright fascists. There are at least three significant factors that uh, comprise the popular image of electric vehicles being more environmentally responsible. The first, there's the highly uh, toxic nature of lithium batteries, which are the essential component in making electric vehicles possible. Second is the disposal of those spent batteries. And the third is the means by which power is generated for those batteries. Now, the mining and extraction process to acquire the massive amounts of lithium that are needed to meet the ever-growing world demand uh, has been causing quite the polluting mess. Guillermo Gonzalez, who's a lithium battery expert from the University of Chile, stated back in 2009, like any mining process, it press, process rather, it is invasive, it scars the landscape, it destroys the water table, and it pollutes the earth and the local wells. This isn't a green solution. It's not a solution at all, end quote. And it's not only the extraction of lithium that's problematic, but also other essential and highly toxic products, such as cobalt, that are needed to make these batteries. Much of this mineral extraction happens in countries that don't share the same concern for protecting the local environment as espoused by the uh, the West that is consuming most of the uh, materials that these batteries require. Meanwhile, there's the reality of the environmental impact of aging and disposed batteries. For the most part, the polluting days of the gas-powered vehicles ends when the vehicle no longer runs, while the issue of dealing with the spent lithium batteries has to continue. No parking the old electric in a junkyard and letting it rust away with little concern. Finally, there's the issue of powering. While green energy fans love their renewable uh, like wind and solar, the fact that the matter is that neither offer the amount or consist- 
the consistency to meet the energy needs of today's world, let alone a world where more and more folks are driving around in these electric vehicles. An ironic uh, video clip has recently resurfaced uh, featuring Kristen Zimmerman, a prominent member of the General Motors Chevy Volt design team, in which she admits that 95% of the electricity used to power the vehicle is generated by coal power. Now, that video is years old, and the numbers have uh, shifted some, but coal is still a major source. What would truly work to cut down on the pollution from electric vehicles would be to increase the number of nuclear power plants producing reliable energy. But environmental activists shun nuclear. Until then, the notion that electric vehicles are significantly more environmentally responsible than the gas-powered autos will continue to remain a popular fairy tale, and it deserves to be addressed head on. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, of course, is Earth Day and much is being said about um, the uh, occasion. It started out as uh, more of an innocuous event. Now it's more uh, pointed toward a number of affiliated causes. And I appreciated uh, the political editors at the Patriot Post who suggested that today being Earth Day, it is uh, devolved into a sig- significant series of uh, focuses that are worth considering. They point out that it's the most holy of eco-fascist holidays. Henry Miller, Miller rather, who's a physician and molecular biologist with the Pacific Research Institute, and Jeff Steyer, who is a senior fellow at the Consumer Choice Center, wrote this about the occasion. The first Earth Day celebration was conceived by then-U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson and held in 1970 as a symbol of environmental responsibility and stewardship. In the spirit of the time, it was a touchy-feely, conscientious raising, consciousness raising, new age experience, and most uh, act- activities were organized at the grassroots level. Sadly, today's Earth Day shares something with the current political environment. It reeks of divisiveness. Earth Day has, devo- has devolved into an occasion for environmental um, Cassandras to prophesy apocalypse, dish anti-technology dirt, and proselytize for a woke agenda. Passion and zeal routinely trump science, and uh, provability takes a backseat to plausibility. Naturally, it's become a leftist political club. The theme of this year's event, Restore Our Earth, has expanded to encompass, encompass rather a progressive wish list, including examining climate and environmental justice, connecting the climate crisis to issues of pollution, poverty, political brutality, and the pandemic, all within a racial justice framework, end quote. Well, it's it's uh, full, they note, of indoctrinating children through various curriculum items, including reading through various um, Rachel Carson screeds, Silent Spring being one, which is responsible for the DDT plan, a ban rather, and therefore millions of malaria deaths. There's indoctrination because climate alarmism has become a religion. The late physician and novelist Michael Crichton argued in his much-acclaimed novel, State of Fear, that eco-fundamentalists have reinterpreted traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs and myths and made a religion of environmentalism. This religion has its own Eden and paradise where mankind lived in a state of grace and unity with nature until mankind's fall, which came not after eating a forbidden fruit, 
but after partaking of the forbidden tree of knowledge, that is technology. This religion also has a judgment day to come for us in this polluted world, all of us that is, except for true environmentalists who will be saved by achieving sustainability. Well, this uh, matters uh, a great deal for all of us. The tiny-minded have enjoyed some dubious successes. They've effectively banished agricultural biotechnology from Europe and much of Africa, put the chemical industry on the run, placed the pharmaceutical industry in their crosshairs, and more. Eco-fundamentalism strangles science, uh, creativity, and um, technological innovation, blocking the availability of products which, used responsibly, could dramatically improve and extend many lives and protect the environment. Neither of those things is the agenda for this movement, today being Earth Day. Something to consider as we hear the rhetoric surrounding the day. Well, last week, President Biden, it was last Thursday to be precise, announced a set of executive actions and legislative proposals on gun control, saying that gun violence is a public health crisis and the administration's actions don't contravene the Second Amendment rights. The president saying they are not absolute. Well, the administration aims to confront not just the gun crisis, as they put it, but what is actually a public health crisis. In his remarks in the Rose Garden, he was joined by Vice President Kamala Harris. Nothing I'm about to recommend in any way in Pinges on the Second Amendment, the president said. These are phony arguments suggesting that there that these are Second Amendment rights at stake from what we're talking about. Continuing, the president said no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. From the very beginning, you couldn't uh, own any weapon you wanted to own. From the very beginning, the Second Amendment existed. Certain people weren't allowed to have weapons. So the idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of these things we're recommending uh, uh, that we're recommending are contrary to the Constitution End quote. Well, in attendance were several high-profile gun control activists, including uh, uh, Brady United President Chris Brown, former Representative Gabby Giffords, and Fred Gutenberg. An administration official detailed the actions to reporters. Among them, Biden uh, is asking the Justice Department to propose within a month a rule to stop ghost guns, which are kits people can buy legally to assemble a functioning firearm that does not have a serial number. He also is asking the Department of Justice to propose within 60 days a rule on braces used for handguns, which make them more accurate. Uh, to propose action um, action on community violence intervention, to publish suggestions for red flag legislation, and he's asking his administration to issue a report on gun trafficking. He also formally announced David Chipman as the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Well, of course, this agenda is not without its uh, opponents, um, and some suggesting that um, the claims during the press conference were disputed, Uh, Indeed, the PLCAA only protects uh, against suits for harm solely. We should also eliminate gun manufacturers from immunity they receive uh, from Congress, the president argued. So this will definitely be an uphill battle for him. But the NRA is in a position right now where they are weaker than before, but did announce earlier this week they plan to spend $2 million to counter and oppose the president's plan. Also, there were efforts to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. This, again, comes as no surprise as the discussion of doing just that uh, were beginning during the presidential campaign. At that time, candidate Biden was unwilling to say whether or not he would be in favor of such a thing. And his um, 
backup is to appoint a commission. In fact, Nancy Pelosi uh, was unwilling to answer direct questions as to whether or not she supported packing the court, saying that she wouldn't bring it up to the fore, but she does support the commission. So this, it seems to me, is sort of the permission that will be cited uh, when this effort moves forward. And trust me, it will move forward affirmatively to try to add numbers to the uh, Supreme Court. Now, the goal here, once again, uh, is to balance the court so that there is um, not the likelihood that conservatives on the court that now hold the majority can, in fact, influence the court in the years to come. Well, if enacted, this Supreme Court packing uh, scheme, the Judiciary Act of 2021, would add four seats to the Supreme Court, four seats to the U.S. Supreme Court. It would be the most radical change to the Supreme Court as an institution in American history. Now, one would therefore expect only the most compelling arguments from its back, uh, backers. And judging from what we uh, heard during these hearings earlier, this assault on judicial independence should crash and burn but the question is, will it? Now, Senator Ed Markey, for example, claimed that expanding the Supreme Court is necessary because Republican appointees represent a 6-3 supermajority. He made no attempt to explain why the number of justices appointed by presidents of different parties is relevant at all, nor did he explain why a 6-3 current tally is a problem. In 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt, he proposed expanding the Supreme Court for the same reason. Democrats want to do so today. He wanted some vacancies that he could quickly fill with justices who would rule the way he wanted. Now, though Democrats held an overwhelming 80 to 16 majority at the time, the Senate rejected Roosevelt's plan by a vote of 70 to 20, more to um, Markey's point. However, Democrats didn't uh, did so even though Republican appointees to the Supreme Court represented an even larger 7-2 supermajority. Well, Markey also argued that Republicans have appointed 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices. He wants us to believe that presidents of each party appoint a group of judicial clones. Republican appointees in Markey's group, however, include Harry Blackman, who authored Roe versus Wade, creating the right to abortion, John Paul Stevens, who has argued that the Second Amendment should be repealed, Anthony Kennedy, who authored Obergefell versus Hodges, creating a right to same-sex marriage, and David Souter, who provided the deciding vote to affirm Roe. Not exactly icons of the right. Well, Markey's numbers correspond to the period since President Richard Nixon took office in 1969. But why slice and dice history that way? Looking a little further back to include Roosevelt, for example, the Republican-Democrat split is even at 20 apiece. The four horsemen who regularly voted to strike down Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, including James McReynolds, appointed by Democrat Woodrow Wilson, and the three musketeers, as they were known at the time, who consistently supported the New Deal, including Harlan Fisk Stone, appointed by Associate Justice uh, Republican Calvin Coolidge. There were other Republican appointees as well. Well, last year, Democrats called for honoring the wishes of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that she be replaced by the next president. This year, however, Democrats are ignoring Ginsburg's wish that Congress refuse to expand the Supreme Court. Doing so would have the very consequence that Democrats avoided in 1937, the political takeover of the judiciary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you uh, back with us for this final segment. want to mention tomorrow on the program we are going to do what we haven't done since the what the 23rd of February was the last live program that I participated in. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news as part of Friday's content. Uh, we'll, of course, look at the headlines, and there'll be plenty. That climate summit is continuing tomorrow, uh, having begun today. We'll bring you the latest on that. Uh, we'll also see if there's any uh, rumblings in the Senate about D.C. statehood, and if, I'm certain there'll be much, much more. But we'll take a look at some of the lighter night side of the news as well. So hope you'll join us for that. Well, thousands of Oregonians, thousands of us, are ripping a proposal to make st- the state's mask mandate Permanent, flooding the state government with openly hostile comments on the idea. Now, I think most of us are in the mode of thinking that we're following the guidelines that the state has proposed and that we're moving inexorably toward a particular end, one in which there are sufficient numbers of people who are vaccinated. The numbers are sufficiently low. Um, We have eased ourselves back into associating with one another so that we can remove the masks and return to some semblance of normalcy. When the announcement was made some days back that um, there might be a permanent mask mandate, Oregonians were, let's say, a little put out. Democratic Governor Kate Brown's health department proposed a permanent masking rule as the current regulations are set to expire next month. Now, by permanent, if what they meant was until further notice, I would have suggested perhaps a different word to be chosen. Permanent in its uh, usual meaning means, well, for all time and memoriam. Well, the proposal has received a record number of public comments, five times more comments than the previous record holder, according to the Washington Examiner. The Oregon Occupational Safety and Health Division led by Administrator Michael Wood, received 5,000 comments on the proposed rule before the public comment period ended. Well, the majority of comments were simply hostile to the uh, entire notion of COVID-19 restrictions, uh, Wood said. The vast majority of comments were in the context of you never needed to do it anyway. Well, Wood floated the proposal to keep masking requirements in place until no longer necessary to address the effects of the pandemic in the, the workplace last month. Of course, if he had given that full explanation rather than using the word permanent, it might not have garnered the same response. He said that the new permanent rule is needed to keep the current regulations from expiring on May the 4th. Now, one might suggest extending the current regulations might have been another way to avoid misunderstanding. Well, Republican State Senator Kim Thatcher ripped Brown's administration for the proposal, accusing the governor of throwing more uncertainty at business owners who've already been hammered by COVID-19 pandemic and heavy-handed regulations that include the quarantine shutting many of them down. When will masks be unnecessary? What scientific studies do these mandates rely on, particularly now that the vaccine is days away from being available to everyone? Businesses have had to play mask roulette, if you will, or mask cop for the better part of a year. They deserve some certainty on when they'll no longer be 
threatening with uh, threatened rather with fines. Well, over a dozen states have removed mask mandates as Americans continue to be vaccinated against COVID-19. President Biden and top health officials continue to urge Americans to keep masking and social distancing even after getting their vaccination, calling into question what's the incentive here to move forward. Well, last month, the president mocked states that have been lifting mask mandates, saying that their leaders were following Neanderthal thinking. I think it's a big mistake, the president said, reacting to the decisions of Texas and Mississippi to lift their mandates. Look, I hope everybody's realized by now these masks make a difference. Well, there's some question as to uh, how much difference and under what circumstances, I would add. But he went on to say we are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease. Well, the goal is not to fundamentally change the nature of it. The um, mutations that we're already seeing is a big problem. So that was not the best way to put it. But he but he did say that because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms, we've been able to move that all the way up to the end of May to have enough for every American to get every adult American to get a shot. Well, the last thing, the last thing we need is, and I'm quoting Neanderthal thinking. So it's not just people who are cautious or believe, given the numbers in their particular area, that the, that they have earned the right to move forward. No, we have to be Neanderthal. It, it's just frustrating to me. You can't have a disagreement based on sound events on the ground. It's, it's got to be shaming and insulting. But the vice president to referring to uh, them as Neanderthal thinking, uh, in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. And it's critical, 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 he went on to say, I'm quoting, that they follow the science, which many would argue they are in their particular locale. Wash your hands, hot water, do it frequently, wear a mask and stay socially distanced. And I know you all know that. I wish the heck some of our elected officials knew it. Well, anyway, Oregonians are not prepared uh, to suggest that wearing masks indefinitely is something they are prepared to do and are working very hard to do what they can, to do what we can uh, to make it possible for us to be safe, socially distanced now perhaps associating together at some point in the future. Now, in my household, my uh, 90-year-old mother, on advice of her physicians, and I was not prepared to allow her to move forward with the shot without a physician saying, given her unique collection of uh, issues and prescriptions and so on, it would be safe for her to do that. She will receive her second shot uh, this Sunday afternoon, and she will be fully vaccinated. Dan Rice has received both of his vaccination shots. Uh, I have postponed uh, considering the same because I'm still on some pretty high-powered prescription drugs to try to manage my um, my health uh, issues. Uh, so I'm waiting for a doctor to say, given what you're taking now and what you're doing now, it's acceptable to move forward. So while I have a lot of questions about the vaccines and uh, what the future holds, I am willing to take the vaccine primarily for the sake of vulnerable family members within my household, but that is not yet the case. Um, so we'll see what the future holds. I know James Blend was able to uh, uh, get his shots, and as the numbers or the uh, criterion has moved down, more and more of us are eligible for uh, the vaccination. We're going to continue to follow what's happening uh, right here in the state of Oregon and around the world. So 
uh, keep your ears tuned right here to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, we're going to focus our attention on the news tomorrow on the program, but we're also going to um, take a look uh, for a couple of segments at the lighter side of the news. I hope you will join us. I also want to give you a heads up next Tuesday, we're going to have an opportunity to be joined by World Concern for their annual Radiothon. I appreciate the opportunity as we are so focused on what's going on in our local communities uh, during this quarantine uh, that we sometimes forget about the wider world and World Concern, as well as others who we partner with on KPDQ, give us an opportunity to look beyond our current circumstance to the needs of others, in this case, around the world. So we'll look forward to that. That's coming up on Tuesday. We'll be focusing on World Concern throughout the day on KPDQ, but most uh, clearly from four to six right here on the Georgine Rice Show. I hope you will plan to join us. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It's a thrill for me to have the opportunity to talk with you. And by the way, our future goal is to be back in the office to broadcast this program live and to open up the phone lines and give you an opportunity to weigh in. That is our uh, our goal, and we hope that as uh, circumstances change, we'll be able to do that sometime this summer. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.